How's it going, everybody? This is the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. We have a returning guest on today, uh, Milo Wolf. He is a PhD um, candidate, right? And you are currently working on your PhD. How, how much time do you have left on that? So that's not a question you usually want to ask PhD students because uh, they'll give you varying answers with varying levels of despair. But in my case, probably around a year. Nice, nice. You're really close. You're also very young, which I think is really, really cool that you've been able to accomplish this at such a young age. And I just saw that you are now coaching for Stronger by Science. That's a huge, huge uh, uh, accomplishment, man. That's awesome. It's a very, very well-respected uh, brand in the evidence-based fitness space. Uh, how did that come about, if you don't mind me asking? For sure. So I'm really happy to be coaching for them now. Um, I've been following their work for basically since I started lifting almost. Like within a year or so, I think I stumbled upon a strength theory at the time. Um, long story short, I knew some of the people that worked there personally for a while now. Not like we haven't met in person, but I've yeah. been in touch with them through various means over the years. Um, and a friend of mine, Pac, is coaching for them now and has been for a year or so. He finished up his PhD in sports science. They reached out to him and were like, hey, cool work you're doing. What experience do you have coaching? And long story short, he started coaching for them. And since he was already coaching for them, so I knew of them through that sort of venue as well. They knew me already. I was like, I reached out to them, um, asked if they had any openings for the coaching team. And we went from there. And it was a very, very stress-free process to get onto their coaching team. So, Yeah, that's yeah, really, really awesome. Um, I will probably touch on that, like towards the end of kind of like what the services you provide, because I think that I, I'd be really interested to see as well. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to, to backtrack a little bit. Um, since the last time we met, you did your first show. And um, this is something that's very relevant to me because I just did my first show. Uh, well, at least I count it as kind of my first show because it's been my first one in like seven years and uh, one where I really actually feel like I optimized a lot. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with that contest prep because um for myself like it, it was it was really just navigating this new territory and it was a lot of learning and that was something i knew going into it so i definitely had to um tailor my expectations for that um regardless it was still kind of a hard thing to do um i think for myself i still like expect myself to do really well um, like, for example, this is something that I dealt with in my contest prep, not saying that this is yours. Uh, I think actually you, you got really, really shredded, but um, I didn't um, I calculate how much weight I needed to lose uh, properly. So so I think I could have been leaner for my bigger show. And I had told myself I would accept that trade off um, prior to stepping into prep. But then when it came down to actually accepting it, it was a very, very hard thing to do. Um, not having the actual look that I wanted, but then also understanding that it was also a limitation of my knowledge at the time and understanding that uh, created that outcome. So um, I'm kind of curious, were there anything like that in your prep? How did the whole prep go? Um, and then I think I wanted to talk a little bit about the recovery period as well after that. Yeah. So first of all, I'm very flattered. You'd say I was super shredded. Um, in my own perception back then, especially I was not as lean as I could have been. And I think that's the case for a lot of first time competitors. Um, I think the mistake you mentioned of not properly assessing how much weight you actually had to lose. That's super common. Like when you're, when you've never competed during the off season, you can think you're much more muscular and your stage weight would be way higher than it really is. Yeah. And you can also think, Oh, you know, I can comfortably lose over a pound a week. 
whereas in the latter stages of prep, a pound a week, depending on natural and hats and so forth. But for natural competitors, for example, a pound a week towards the end of prep is pretty quick. Um, yeah. And so many people don't plan for a long enough prep or as you said earlier, actually, um, maybe pick their shows too far in advance and commit to them. Where maybe I've seen, for example, 3DMJ's um, Jeff Alberts do this, where instead of, especially in countries with, like the US, where you have lots of shows everywhere, it might be worth just sort of prepping when your life allows for it, for say a, a few months, six months, what have you, um, and not really rushing the process. Let's say, for example, you have a really high stress period coming up that's unexpected, then you can just delay whichever show you end up picking. So I think picking your show maybe a month or two ahead of time and really making sure that it's the right time to pick your show, that can be helpful for first-time competitor um, because otherwise you run into an issue that a lot of people run into as a first-time bodybuilder. Um, then again, I think it's almost expected and it might not be such a bad thing to not show up fully diced in your first show because if you did, most people would have a pretty hard time and might be so hard and so challenging that it might put them off the sport entirely. Whereas if you progressively get leaner and leaner with each competition season, you might appreciate the challenge each time, the increasing challenge, but never be overwhelmed by it. And that can be a nice thing. So I think for my first show, I didn't get as lean as I wanted to be. Uh, I definitely got leaner than I thought that I'd ever been by by, by a long yeah. shot. And I think that's, that's really what you should be looking for to an extent is, you know, beating your all-time best. Um, but yeah, I think the post-competition period is definitely something that isn't addressed enough, and I think that'll be interesting to get to as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really good approach. I've actually talked to a few people now who say that that kind of letting the show come to you, so to speak, and allowing for life, because also being able to manip uh, maneuver those challenges, like uh, you know life stress and stuff like that, is definitely a skill. Um, especially I think as a natural competitor, because I think your timeline is a lot longer. So you have a lot more, uh, of life events and holidays and stuff to navigate. Um, so that's definitely a skill that, that is important to have, uh, and also takes some pressure off of you, uh, as, as like, Hey, I have to be ready at this date. Uh, I, maybe I don't feel ready or psychologically, I might need a diet break because I wasn't ready for this challenge or wasn't expecting it to be this degree of hard. So yeah, I agree. And then, and then, like you mentioned, kind of, you know, being able to pull off that rate of loss towards the end will definitely reduce the, the strain of the hardest part of prep, arguably, right? It's just like not having to, and that was for my, one of the mistakes or, or just limitations of my timeline was just like, I was just pushing so hard towards the end. Um, and it would have been nice to have at least pulled off the rate of loss a little bit to, to lessen the burden of being at really low body fats. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, and brief, yeah, just brief. interestingly enough, it's kind of almost the opposite of what you want to do, which is start off fairly aggressive because you're still higher in body fat and so forth. So you can lose weight pretty quickly. And then as you get leaner and leaner, slow it down. But as a first time competitor, the opposite often tends to happen. Um, yeah. And that's yep. not ideal. Um, yeah. I will say major props to you for, for example, I'm not sure how public you've been with this, but I've seen you post about it on Instagram. <laughs> for getting a therapist proactively as a sort of precautionary, precautionary measure. Um, I think that sort of thing can be quite helpful if you think you're somewhat prone to any sort of mental health concerns during a prep or in general, because prep can definitely bring out those concerns. It can be difficult, for example, to tell apart 
okay, am I depressed or do I just have a lot of physical fatigue from being in prep? Um, So either way, I think having some sort of medical professional, mental health professional available for that sort of thing can be a helpful, um, you know, first aid kit of sorts. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting thing because it's really it's tough in a sport that idolizes being tough and working really hard, being transparent about that sort of thing as well. Um, but it was my limitation before. It it really had stopped me from doing diets in the past. Uh, my mental health and and where it was at. Um, arguably, it was also some difference in coaching styles and and that didn't work with my psychology as well. But um, it was, for me, it was the, the determining factor of if I could complete it and just accomplishing and completing these preps was a huge win in that regard. Um, So yeah, I I think that if you're someone who's prone to anxiety or depression, or you have some sort of, um, I mean, even if it just manifests in prep, it, it might be smart to talk to somebody because then you can at least identify like, you know, potentially why that is occurring. Are there things that you have within your control? Like for myself, um, I had worked uh, against it really hard for a long time and um, just kind of just denied the fact that I might need help. And then, um, and I basically had had uh, gotten to the point where everything was optimized to where, where a therapist told me like, yeah, you're doing all the good, all the things correctly. Like, I don't know why you're, you know, basically... Uh, eventually getting medicated. This was what I what I uh, ended up doing. And it was life changing. Like it literally made a substantial difference to where I was like, Oh, this is what it feels like to not be anxious. And I was able to um, overcome and face a lot of the challenges with 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 the necessary and proper tools that someone who doesn't experience those, um, you know, disorders uh, could do. So yeah, it was and it's weird, right? Because when you think about it, there's still such a stigma around medication, but at the same time, prep, as much as it is physical, obviously your body fights you back. A lot of it is psychological and mental. Like, yeah, bodybuilders keep talking about how it's all about willpower, grit, determination, and so forth. And having mental health issues definitely messes with that. So I, I think not addressing mental health issues before and during a prep can definitely hinder your success majorly. And I think it's definitely an underlooked or um, and often overlooked area of working with athletes. Like in fact, I've I've had uh, athletes myself who during prep would report mental health issues and I would turn them towards therapists or have you. Yeah. Um, They can surface for sure. Exactly. And I think, as a coach, for example, I'm sure you know this, it can be hard to draw a line between uh, leaving a person to make their own decisions and wanting to bring up a thing that you think might be something, you know? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to start pointing fingers or pathologizing your clients. But if the same thing goes with um, relationships, relationships with food, for example, like if towards the end of a prep or um, even during the off-season with a general client, you notice that their relationship with food or with their body isn't very positive. Usually, like, I try and be cautious not to sort of pathologize it because some degree of concern over how you look or concern about foods is normal, right, with physique athletes or even just gym goers, I guess. Um, But at some point, you do have to make the decision as a coach to say, 
hey, look, I think you might be dealing with this. Obviously, the decision is yours, but it might be worth seeing a professional about it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, and 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 I think so. I actually had this conversation the day after my show with uh, my buddy and my girlfriend while I was stuffing my face with donuts, which is kind of ironic. But um, I was talking. We were talking about like you know um, coaching people and um, like what do you do if maybe you identify um, disordered eating patterns. And I was explaining that uh, this is at least my my perspective, not being a a, a professional in this in this field by any means. Um, of like disordered eating or, or psychology but I was saying that like some of it to an ex to a dis to it uh, an extent is to be expected potentially um, especially with people who are experiencing this for the first time like that's totally fine for someone to have a lapse uh, of, of this happening or occurring like especially if they can course correct identify why it occurred and and be somewhat reflective but I think as like a coach like 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 what I was saying my perspective is just kind of take note of it like document that and, and then I think having some criteria of like, hey, like one behavior isn't, isn't uh, disordered, isn't necessarily like a, an actual disorder or a, a pathology. But uh, if we have multiple behaviors or, or reoccurrence of those behaviors, then maybe we should start to, you know, point that person in, in that direction, right? Is so, so for myself moving forward, like I kind of like try to like keep documentation of like the messages that, that occur and then kind of look at the occurrence of those because um, it is kind of hard to manage a lot of people as well. So having some sort of like maybe file on your client and just, you know, looking at like, hey, like their their relationship with food based on my kind of questionnaire has progressively gotten worse and they're not psychologically doing well. Their stress rating is really high. You know, maybe they need some some help. Um, yeah. and, and, then, and then knowing what your limitation is as a, as a coach, like, hey, this is my area of expertise. I am not a psychologist. I'm not a, you know, uh, I don't work in, uh, behavioral or disordered eating. Um, and there are people who can manage that much better. And then also, uh, uh, release the liability for me because I don't want to be treating things that I'm not qualified to treat as well. hundred percent. And I think that's also an area where having a coach can come in super handy and it's not really something people will talk about that much, but having a coach there who you vocalize your thoughts to or your behaviors and so forth, right. And they've dealt with your population before people in your position, they can more often than not recognize when, say, certain things you're saying might be indicative of something underneath that is not good. For example, a mental health issue, uh, disordered eating or an eating disorder. Yeah. Whereas if I've had a, a few clients now who, you know, I, I read their messages and I can tell that their relationship with food might not be ideal. And over time, that can lead to me bringing it up. And I think... Oftentimes, if you don't bring it up with them, it's something that can actually just completely go under the radar. Like they don't right. even notice it themselves. Um, and for what it's worth, you do see in the research that physique athletes tend to have much higher rates of eating disorders and disordered eating. Disordered eating is basically just a, a less intense version of an eating disorder. It's just certain patterns of thinking about eating and food, etc., that aren't necessarily ideal or healthy. Uh, whereas an eating disorder is a more pathological or more severe condition, let's say. Uh, but you do see that in physique competitors and athletes, there are higher rates of these things. And it could be one of two things. It's like a combination of two things. A, the sport probably pre-selects people with a tendency towards those things, which means if you're concerned about what you eat and uh, might stray into some disordered eating from time to time, 
the idea of being lean and like really diced and so forth might appeal to you a bit more and so you're more likely to compete in bodybuilding but also there's a good chance and i think this is the case to some extent that competing in physique sport alone probably makes you more likely to have disordered eating and eating disorders longer term um i know for me for example my relationship with food has definitely changed since i had my first show like before i competed my relationship with food was very sort of robotic almost where um you very much view food as fuel you don't really care how it's made as long as it gives you the macros you need the calories the protein and so forth yeah. and you're most concerned with just making it quick making it taste passable uh and getting it down and getting pretty satiated from the foods like having high fiber and so forth but then uh, as you get deeper and deeper into prep for example one classic example would be looking up food videos or uh, food porn on Instagram and so forth. And eventually you'd sort of delve into the rabbit hole and that can stay with you for a bit. So for example, ironically enough, since prep happened, I got a lot more into cooking, which is for better or worse, now a hobby of mine. Um, but I think prep can have a long lasting effect on your relationship with food and definitely with your body too. I think with your body, it can be a bit more... Um, varied like some people might actually find themselves less focused on their physique in the off season for example because they kind of have seen their physique in peak shape and they're now aware that okay there's just a bunch of fat everywhere and they sort of don't pay as much attention to it anymore unless they're competing soon um but it can also lead some people to be a lot more concerned because oh i don't look as diced as i did on show day i look worse in yeah. pictures and that's also not very pleasant for a lot of people yeah, and I think that's a great transition to to speak about your post show recovery, and and potentially how how you managed and 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 um, dealt with that situation, um, because I think we know, uh, and I, I'm assuming you have had this expectation going into it, like like having the background knowledge of like, hey, you know, you need to recover, uh, you know, you need to get your body fat up to a certain level. But then also dealing with that, like for your first time, like how was that, you know, because you do have to let go of this thing that you've worked really hard for. Um, and you have to accept that it's a temporary thing. And then um, kind of what, what went with that for you? Yeah. So to be honest, for me, the last few weeks of prep were basically just um, me throwing my all into it. Like I was doing my absolute best. It felt like every day was very, very challenging. It was a combination of both uh, being at the end of a prep, being pretty low on body fat, pretty low on energy in general. And also, I think towards that time, I started having some more mental health issues. Um, so it was basically just me battling every day, trying to get through a day, get my steps in. It was basically like a checklist towards the end, you know, like yep, yep. genuinely the last month or two are basically a checklist of, okay, what do I need to get through today to make it successfully to that day, you know? Um, so it would be like, you know, steps, posing, my sessions, um, don't overeat, keep the foods I have, the meals I've planned, do it. You know, there were even time, there were even times in prep where I would, um, eat my meals earlier because it wasn't, it was like a strange form of cheating where, oh, you know, you have these three, four, exactly. You have these okay. three, four meals a day. Right. And, um, you like, okay. First meal, 8am, second meal, 12, uh, third meal, 4pm. And it would get to the point where I was like, okay, let me have all three meals at 8 a.m. instead. And then I have no food for the rest of the day oh. and I feel miserable. But it would just, it would f make me feel good for a moment, you know? You fall, yeah, um, you're actually feeling of being full for one moment. 
and then the rest of the day is horrible and you have yeah. to endure that and it makes your likelihood of fucking up way higher but way higher yeah yeah but hey um anyways after the show i'd given it my all i was i was tired you know so i enjoyed prep in some ways for sure um in other ways it was tiring as hell and it wasn't something i was going to do again anytime soon so i was basically just looking forward to getting back to life because towards the end of the prep a lot of things can take a hit your social life your relationships everything and so at that stage i was mostly looking forward to resuming those things that i missed out on a little bit yeah i think you can do a pretty good job especially as you become more experienced as a bodybuilder in maintaining those things while you prep but at some point something's going to have to give it can be your work it can be your relationships it can be eating out with friends that you usually would eat out with something's going to give um and towards the end of prep, I was cognizant of that. And I thought that given I wasn't going to compete again within at least a year or two, I didn't really care. So I yep. I definitely still tried to include a lot of quote-unquote healthy, satiating foods in my diet to make sure I didn't completely go off the rails. But it was also a matter of, okay, let's have a recovery diet. Let's regain a bunch of weight until I feel roughly normal again. And from there, I can take it back to a, a normal off-season protocol where I slowly gain weight. Um but it's sort of like, I think the analogy has been used before, and I'm probably just stealing it from someone. But when you're deep into a prep, you're essentially on fire, you know, and you don't feel better from being on fire by slowly pouring water on yourself and very slowly regaining weight, usually. Usually you have to at least um, take out that fire, put it out before you can feel pretty good again. So that's why a lot of people opt for a recovery diet where you regain weight pretty quickly, say, typically five to 10% of your body weight over five to 10 weeks, I'd say. Um, and that's roughly the approach I took. I regained around 20 pounds in a matter of a month or two. Um, and then I felt a lot better. And then from there you could restart your off season and feel more normal overall. I imagine your experience has been somewhat similar. You described it earlier, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I came to the same idea of, um, one not know, knowing that I'm not going to compete for a while because I have major improvements that I'd like to make, and then also um, learning and and reflecting on the the psychology of of prep is is a big part of it. Um, and really, I, I think you had mentioned this, but like uh, it gets really tough even if you are a process oriented um, uh, person or or you're in, approaching bodybuilding as in a process versus an outcome um, oriented way you still have a hard time finding your why and really uh, connecting with that when you're really, really deep into a diet. And that was something like that last month where it was really hard, even though you can try to rationalize, uh, you are so food focused and your, your body is so, and your brain are so concerned with, with, um, you know, with food and, you know, getting sleep. Uh, that it's really difficult to have this like higher level of thinking of like, hey, what is what is this what is this thing that I'm doing? Why am I doing it? Um, you know, is why is why is this thing that I'm doing worth it more than eating food or sleeping, which are probably uh, higher in the hierarchy of survival, right? Um, it's it's really I think you're kind of battling that psychology. Um, so that is a really interesting uh, dynamic to deal with. Um, and especially for someone who, like, I mean, I've spent the last seven years, um, you know, potentially mostly in growth phases, obviously doing cuts to get off the body fat. 
Um, but you know, you're more so you can take more enjoyment out of that. You're eating good food. You're happy. Your social life isn't affected as much. Um, other areas of your life aren't affected as, as much. You can really, uh, enjoy the process a little bit more. I feel like, uh, aside from, you know, pushing food down your throat. Um, so I think that that was a really interesting thing to maneuver, um, especially being a little bit more mature now and, and looking at that. But yeah, uh, I think I've taken the same approach where I think I don't really see the purpose in trying to stay lean. Um, I, 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 I can see how like staying relatively lean and not overdoing it is definitely, um, um, probably a smart idea, especially for enhanced competitors, um, just for health reasons and other things. But I think also you need to kind of sit down and have that trade-off discussion with yourself as to, Hey, like, like, like for myself, I knew that I would have disordered eating if I didn't bring my food up, um, uh, to a great degree. Um, I knew that I would probably start to binge just knowing how I've, I've had those episodes in the past and knowing what to look for. I knew that if I didn't bring my food up, and I continue to try to keep my calories uh, even, you know, higher, closer to a maintenance or slight surplus that uh, I would probably still have those behaviors. So I, I basically took the approach of, of intuitive eating and I actually had to back off of tracking. And I basically just had an idea of how many calories I was eating, whole foods first. And then if I wanted some extra stuff at the end of the night, I, I had it. And I think uh, uh, removing that restriction psychologically helped me a lot. Um, yeah. And for what it's worth, intuitive eating is one of the sort of treatment options that seem to work pretty well for people with disordered eating and eating disorders. Essentially, removing as many restrictions and rules around your eating as possible tends to result in you feeling less, A, less, um, less restricted in your eating, less guilt when you do overeat or eat something you shouldn't or what have you. And in general, those things seem to help. And what a lot of people find actually when they adopt intuitive eating as an approach is that because they remove those rules that make them feel constrained and constricted and um, limited, I guess, oftentimes simply the removal of those rules doesn't actually result in that much more food being eaten. It just allows for their mental health to be a lot better around food. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a very good approach. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's really hard to, to, to do though as a, someone who competes and um, I mean, also like, uh, your brand to some degree, uh, if you're like, you're a coach, like, uh, your physique is, is somewhat, uh, you, you, I mean, I wouldn't say that it is, but I think that you have the, uh, potential to kind of tie your physique to your abilities, right? Like, Hey, how I look all the time is a reflection of myself and my abilities. And I had to really like sit down and say, well, well, I think this is appropriate obviously for myself and my mental health, but also like, this is, this is reality, right? So other people will deal with this as well. And taking the correct approach for myself will also teach me how to um, do, do the same for somebody else. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of the coaches that tend to try to push people after shows, like I remember I specifically had a coach who told me I was having like these kind of disordered eating be uh, behaviors. And uh, he told me, like you're a bodybuilder, suck it up. And that's probably one of the worst things you can tell someone who's having disordered eating behaviors, because then their likelihood of um, relapse and also not telling you when they have, uh, I was just talking about this with someone uh, yesterday, not telling you when, you, when they do have these uh, patterns. Um, not that someone like that is even equipped to, to know what to do if they tell you anyway, but um, hiding it from you. Um, and, and that's really not a good place to be, because I think 
even talking to someone is, is really, really big. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's really tough. Uh, and, and I think as, as a whole, the bodybuilding industry, um, you know, we, we idolize and we still, unfortunately, um, working really hard and pushing through it. And that was that kind of that coach's approach. Uh, but in reality, we are, we are humans. We are like, we have, uh, emotions and feelings and, um, some people, and I think you were, you mentioned this about like self-selection. I think, uh, I've been really interested in genetics a lot lately, but I think that a lot of the people who are drawn to the sport of bodybuilding also have this potential, um, of, of, uh, self-selection where they are someone who maybe can push through those things. Um, and I think that some other people who are maybe shown that way, they fall off by the wayside where you have a lot of these coaches who are coaching these types of people and they have a, you know, they, the people who stick around are the ones who do this type of like work really hard, push through it. Your emotions don't matter kind of, kind of style. So, um, other people do exist that have, uh, you know, like, like anxiety and things like that. And, um, I love bodybuilding. I'm not going to give it up just because I have anxiety. Like I want to learn how to maneuver it and work through it. So. 100%. And the anecdote you brought up with the client who, you know, told you a lot of bodybuilders don't tell their coaches when they binge. I think cultivating a sort of atmosphere of transparency and compassion and understanding as a coach with an athlete is super important. I've had a lot of clients where I was speaking to, speaking to one today, actually, where they, they had a coach previously. Um, they were sticking to a plan, but they weren't seeing weight loss. And the coach straight up accused them of lying repeatedly. And that is going to do one of two things to the client. Either make them not want to work with you anymore and quit entirely. And long-term, that's not ideal for the results or for your wallet. Um, or B, they will just not tell you anything anymore. They'll just become a lot less transparent. And that's also not a good thing because you want to know what's going on with them. And eventually, I think... If they feel like they can't be honest with you, that will eventually lead to your relationship ending anyways. So cultivating a sort of compassionate, transparent environment for your athlete as a coach, especially in physique sports where, you know, when you see on social media, you see other people's Instagram, mine included, by the way, um, you usually see mostly physique pics from when someone's usually fairly lean. And it can be important to acknowledge that most bodybuilders spend most of the year at much more reasonable body fat percentages you only see the great pictures and if you compare yourself to those you might think oh fuck i must be doing something wrong i'm always super fat and look terrible compared to these people in reality you probably look around where you should be in terms of body fat um but it can be very easy to forget that when all you see is people's highlight reels on instagram where they're super lean um yeah uh, the most productive training, the most improvement takes place at much higher body fat than what you often see. Absolutely. Especially when you look at, um, you know, for myself, I compare myself to enhanced competitors a lot of time. Not only do they, um, you know, generally share, you know, like competition photos and stuff like that. They, they have, you know, these batch shoots of photos. They also just because of their sheer muscularity, look leaner at higher body fat percentages. Like if you have abs that are just so thick that they show through layers of fat, um, they're going to just look leaner on average through and, and just the actual size of the muscle pushing against the skin will, will show more vascularity as well. Um, so it's really like, it's hard to really compare someone of different, I mean, that's where comparison becomes a really big issue is like someone of different body type, 
different genetics, uh, you know, different enhancements, like if, if they're enhanced or not. Uh, there's so many, you know, that's a, another rabbit hole that, that we could go down. But I think that that's something that you should try your best to avoid doing, um, especially like uh, close to the show. I just shut off like all the bodybuilding without borders and stuff. We're posting a lot of my competitors and stuff. And I just I just didn't think it had any relevance to anything and probably would just be detrimental to my psychology. So I agree. I think it's a good approach to take. I think like we mentioned earlier in terms of your timeline with prep. I think for first-time competitors, something that could be helpful to remember is that on stage, you do want to look good from all angles. So while someone else might look fully ready when their quads are feathered, you know, you might have a lot of fat in your lower back, boots, hamstrings. For me, for example, that was the case. Um, yep, same here. And, you know, from the side and from the front, I looked pretty on point, but then turn around and, oh, shit, what's that? You know, I look way different from anyone else. So I think you should see your end point in prep when your worst shot becomes good, basically. Yeah, yeah um, that's something that I've started to um, uh, inquire about. Uh, obviously, I look for it as a coach, but also like kind of ask people like, hey, what, what do you think is like the area that just doesn't um, get as lean, right? And I kind of try to, to look at those areas now. And that was something I learned from this prep is like to look at that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think that uh, that's something. Not at all, man. That, that's some point, I think. For dudes, for example, it can often be, oh, you know, your arms, chest, uh, quads, abs come in pretty quickly. But then your glutes, hands, and lower back, they can take forever. Like, you can feel emaciated everywhere else. Yeah. And your abs will still be fat somehow. It's an awful <laughs> yeah. time. That's so true, 100%. Uh, and then it's different for different people. But, yeah, on average, I think that that's usually the case. Uh, cool. I mean, I, th I we, we talked a lot, a lot about that. I, I think that would be really useful for a lot of people, though. I did want to get into, however, your your main focus and probably what you've spent a great deal of time on in the last couple of years, I'm assuming, uh, is uh, in a more simplified uh, ter terminology, uh, stretch under load for hypertrophy um, or, or training muscles at a lengthened position. Could you kind of define, um, you know, potentially full range of motion, um, uh, uh, training at lengthened, uh, maybe in more layman's terms? Absolutely. So to clarify, my research mostly centers around range of motion. But okay, when you think about general, range of motion, yeah. right? Um, range of motion is intrinsically tied to muscle length because different parts of the range of motion are going to correspond to different muscle lengths. And so when you're asking, okay, is a certain range of motion better than another? You're also asking, is that probably due to muscle length differences? For example, if you're doing a full range of motion versus a partial range of motion in a squat, right? If you're doing a half squat, you're mostly getting short muscle lengths for your quads. So your quads are still pretty short at the top, so you don't really ever get a deep stretch in your quads. Whereas if you do a four-range motion squat, you then include those lower muscle lengths. Now, when you look at the evidence generally, you find that lower muscle lengths, or a stretch in a muscle group, tends to be pretty useful for hypertrophy. You can see this from a variety of bodies of literature, from animal modeling, to comparing partial ranges of motion at different muscle lengths. So there were studies where they compared, for example, doing a tricep extension with say 90 degrees of range of motion. So that's 90 degrees of elbow extension. So just 90 degrees of your um, your radius moving relative to your, oh, go on. Like oh, oh, nice. Like, okay. I thought you demonstrated. Let's kind of like <laughs> illustrate it, right? It's, is, it, is it this right here? Yeah, so just extension, correct, yeah. Okay. Um, 
And when you compare doing that same range of motion, so just 90 degrees at different muscle lengths, you do find that lower muscle lengths are better for hypertrophy. Then there's been some other random studies, like for example, recently, there's been a study where they had people stretch their calves for an hour a day using a device. Uh, it's basically like a device that would cause your calves to be stretched for an hour a day, not like maximum stretch intensity. So like, let's say you're trying to stretch calves. It wouldn't be like you stretching as hard as you possibly could, because that'd be quite painful, uh, but yeah. like a, a moderate intensity stretch. And they saw some pretty robust hypertrophy following that. So in general, when you look at the full range of motion versus partial range of motion literature, when you look at the partial range of motion at different muscle length literature, when you look at the sort of um, adjacent literature, when you think about it mechanistically, so when you have a muscle, there's two kinds of tension. There's active tension and passive tension. Passive tension is essentially generated, let's say you think of your muscle as a rubber band, right? When you stretch out that rubber band, because you're stretching it out and it's elastic, there's some intrinsic tension that gets um, generated because the muscle wants to return to its rough, roughly resting length, right? And so the same happens when you stretch a muscle during training. So for example, during an RDL at the very bottom, you get a deep stretch in your hamstrings that the muscle and some passive structures like the tendons and ligaments and so forth might result in there being some higher level of passive tension. And we know that at the sort of molecular or fiber level, tension itself is what initiates the growth process. Um, so not to get into details, but the mTOR pathway is what activates muscle growth roughly. And more tension results in more mTOR activation, which then results in more growth. Very simplified, but that's roughly it. So taken all together, lots of evidence suggests that long muscle lengths are a good idea. And when directly compared to doing either long muscle lengths or short muscle lengths, long muscle lengths tend to win in terms of hypertrophy. And so what I think is especially interesting is I did some analyses. So I collected all the data on partial range of motion versus full range of motion and did a meta-analysis. So that's all the studies that I've compared the two. I did a variety of sub-analyses. So essentially taking those and comparing them to other parts so that I could, for example, compare um, studies where they did partial range of motion at short muscle lengths versus partial range of motion at long muscle lengths compared to full range of motion. And what you see for hypertrophy is that when a partial range of motion is done at long muscle lengths, it may actually result in more hypertrophy than doing a full range of motion. And that might simply be because longer muscle lengths have this intrinsic benefit of generating a lot of passive tension, as we discussed earlier, with the sort of elastic band analogy. Um, or it could be something else. But it does seem like, at the very least, training at long muscle lengths might be equivalent to doing a full range of motion, if you're doing a partial range of motion at long muscle lengths. Or it might even be better. On the flip side, it looks like doing partial reps at, at shorter muscle lengths, like for example, I don't know, a half squat at the very top, or the start of a bench where your chest and triceps are still quite shortened. Um, that likely isn't as good for hypertrophy as a full range of motion repetition or as a long muscle length partial range of motion repetition. So that's the long and short of it. I bored you to death with all this range of motion stuff, but you get the idea. No, no, I'm really, really interested in it. So um, from our current understanding, it's Generally, we you, the reason why we wouldn't recommend um, training at just lengthened positions is just because of the lack of, of volume of data, right? Is that why? Or like, it's just like, hey, we might, th we think that it's it's like full range of motion versus partial in the lengthened position. Um, 
net neutral or positive on the side of of training in the lengthened position more but we don't know we don't have enough to say that full range versus lengthened uh, only training is is you know for sure better and more beneficial is that kind of correct yeah that's roughly a gist of it so i think a lot of science stems from a place of skepticism where unless you have a pretty compelling body of evidence to suggest so you probably don't want to change your stance or what you do, your practices. Right. Um, I think if you follow this logic that I described earlier to its extremes, you can wind up with some pretty interesting conclusions, interesting or absurd. And that depends on your perspective and your risk tolerance, I guess, almost. Uh, I mean, if you consider getting slightly less jacked a big risk, then I guess you can define it as a risk tolerance. <laughs> Basically, if you think about it this way, if a partial range of motion at long muscle lengths conceptually was always better than a full range of motion, eventually you wind up at the conclusion that isometrics at long muscle lengths would be ideal. So for example, forget pull-ups, let's all just do dead hangs per time right. for say 30 to 60 seconds so as to get enough time or attention for each set to be maximally effective. Um, obviously that's, you know, time or attention itself isn't super correlated to hypertrophy per set, but if you need a certain amount of time or attention per set to maximize the hypertrophy response, that's why you see people saying do at least five reps per set, because that roughly equates to say 10, 15 seconds of um, a lot of tension being generated. Now, would I now with my knowledge about range of motion and long muscle lengths and short muscle lengths go out there and tell everyone, hey, forget lifting weights, forget all these machines. All you have to do really is just contract really hard at long muscle lengths. No, I'm not quite ready to make those uh, those claims yet. I do think there is room for experimentation, especially if you're a bit more uh, tolerant of the risk to maybe yeah, see yeah. slightly less hypertrophy. And if you're of the mind that evidence, scientific evidence is pretty helpful for guiding your training, then I think you can play around with it. And maybe, for example, do some partials at long muscle lengths or play around with within sets, for example, making sure to pause at that long muscle length position or that stretched out position, say the bottom of a squat, for example. You have a lot of tension there, and by pausing there, you're essentially spending more of your per set time and per set effort and energy and so forth at those long muscle lengths where hypertrophy is likely greater than if you spend more time at shorter muscle lengths where you're not getting as much out of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think working within that framework of like, hey, um, we have this, the body of evidence that generally is more strong in this position, um, but having some experimentation and that gets into more of the applied side. So I think you have started to experiment with some of this in your training. And I actually, uh, based on things you've been posting, I've been experimenting in my training, um, uh, of, of applying like for myself. Um, and I, I'm sure you probably do this to, to some degree. I generally bias a good deal of my volume for a muscle group towards the lengthened position, if I can take a machine or implement and 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 uh, improve the lengthened position, like uh, for example, my gym just got a cambered bar, um, and I can get a really good stretch in my pecs or get a uh, well, it really just more so for chest, get a really good stretch in my pecs. If I have like a machine row, I can actually push the the pad really far back and kind of lean forward and get a good stretch. So I generally try to bias that in my training as opposed to the shortened position. Although maybe a small percentage of my training does also have some shortened, um, you know, bias as well. Um, 
so that's a way I've applied it, but I'm curious, you had a, another way, but, but could you explain um, how you practically use this in your training? Yeah. So broadly speaking, as you mentioned, I think generally including exercises that take you through those long muscles is a good idea. So the camber bar bench, for example, is a great example where you get more stretched pecs, more stretched triceps likely. Um, another one is pausing at the stretched out position within each rep. It's also a great idea. I think safer too, right? Indeed, likely safer. I think uh, if if only because it results in you using less weight, there being lower forces during the exercises because you have less uh, acceleration going on or less yeah. stretch. For example, just it's a lot of stuff. Going on. Yeah. It's it's it, injury is complicated, but I'm going to assume it's safer for now. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the final way to incorporate it would be something I call a lengthened superset. Now, don't. Um, I'm not married to that name yet. I'm, I'm hesitating between length and stretched, or maybe even the wolf superset to take all the credit for it. Um, I but I'm not that. sure if, if stretched superset or lengthened superset sounds better and more intuitive, because I think lengthened is a bit cryptic sometimes, where stretched is like, oh, I know what stretching is, you know? Yeah. I'm going to say stretched, I guess. Stretched supersets. So basically what you do is you take a full range of motion set, or whatever range of motion you like to use. If you use less than four, that's fine too. Whatever range of motion you typically use, uh, take that set to the proximity to failure that you usually use, would like to use, whether that's two reps child failure or two failure, let's say. You take that set to failure, and once you're done, you know, let's say it's a row. Mm, actually, I say it's a squat. You take a squat to failure, um, you, fa you fail a rep, you go back down, and then instead of doing full range of motion reps, what you do is you just do the lengthened part of that range of motion. So for a squat, for example, that might be the very bottom. Um, so you might typically the way I implement it is doing half of the range of motion. And I do pay attention to standardization, which means right. for most exercises, you have some sort of landmark you can use. Uh, it's a random example here, but for the um, hip abduction machine or the bad girl, as it's colloquially known, um, you usually have like pins that you set up for the range of motion, right? Like you can set the things either closer together or further apart. And so there's numbers with those. And so I typically say, okay, if there's, say, it's one through eight, I need to reach at least number four during the rep for that to be half the range of motion, right? Um, roughly. But I try and use some sort of landmark that you can standardize visually and or mechanically. Like if, for example, you have mechanical stops in a machine, that can be nice too. Yeah. But some sort of indication that you're still getting half the range of motion. So you do a full range of motion set to a certain RP. You finish that set without rest. And usually, honestly, I would use the same weight. I've seen people play around with the idea of using more weight. So they call it a reverse drop set. The issue with that is I very often am not able to get more than two or three reps with the same weight. Yeah. So trying to add weight would be very, very challenging. Like I could get like one rep maybe. And I think keeping the same weight is A, less hassle, and B, actually gets you a few reps more than you would if you tried to add weight. And I think it just doesn't make much sense. For some exercises, you might find that you can actually add weight and get like, I don't know, an extra five reps. Now, it's important to notice that the number of reps on that second set doesn't matter much because you still got enough time and retention from that first set. So it doesn't really matter. It's just a way to accentuate the lengthened position, which is likely more hypertrophic. Um, and this might be especially important for exercises where the lengthened position is otherwise pretty easy. Like think about a row, right? A row, you'll basically never fail it at the lengthened position. That's a relatively understimulated part of the range of motion. 
And so if you were to continue that set and do half reps at the lengthened position, you'd probably get a lot more reps than you would if you just did a full range of motion set and likely a lot more hypertrophy out of that set because you got a lot more stimulus out of that second part of the set, essentially. Um, so that's roughly how I apply it. It's I call it a stretch superset. And I do it mostly on exercises and body parts where, again, that length and position isn't very challenging. And that usually includes stuff like bicep work, like side delt work, like rear delt work oftentimes, um, some back work. For stuff like chest, like and chest pressing, for example, um, and quad work, typically it's not super necessary, I think, just yeah. because you most of the quad exercises, like squats, for example, I mean, leg extensions are exception, but squats or squat variations, quite challenging at the bottom, you know, if not at the very, very bottom, at the very least, pretty close to it, like around parallel. Um, chest, same thing, pretty challenging at the bottom when you have a lot of stretch, or at the very least, a couple of inches off the chest, which is pretty close to it again. But then stuff like rows and lateral raises, right? You barely get any tension or it's not very challenging in those stretched out positions. And that's where I think those lengthened supersets or stretched supersets can be helpful in promoting hypertrophy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think one thing to consider is also your your accessibility to pieces of equipment. Like I think this is very useful if you have, uh, say, when you start to maybe want to bias some of the lengthened uh long muscle lengths in your training uh but you have access to equipment that uh you know some gyms like i've, I've now that i know this i've gone to certain gyms and just the pieces of equipment generally uh, sometimes the older pieces too just just generally are not great um especially in that lengthened position as far as like biasing it and they might be harder in the shortened position so that might be a way you could actually apply that um one thing i wanted to say was um I guess it's kind of not super relevant, but I do think, yeah, like because those muscles, like the quads and the chest generally get uh, a lot of stretch in our load. Like, I, I don't even know if I was, I would probably have to reduce my volume um, to even be able to, to use some of these techniques. Um, and I'm not sure if I would really be willing to do that um, when these full range of motion variations generally work pretty well um, to reduce my volume because I just incur so much damage from like normal quad and, and chest training to reduce my volume to do partials. Like I, I think, um, like for example, uh, I don't know if you, you probably do this, but the reason why, when I tried that, what you mentioned, the stretch superset, um, there were certain movements, like for example, like biceps, I just, man, the stimulus I get is very low. My reps have been really effective, but also, um, the stimulus to fatigue ratio that I was able to produce. Like I remember doing it on preacher curl for the first time. Um, the, the pump and disruption I got in my biceps is like uh, nothing I've ever experienced, even from one set. Um, so even just using those proxies of like, Hey, I, I know maybe that the data isn't, you know, there isn't a ton of it, but, um, from an anecdotal perspective, using those proxies, um, that we maybe have a good idea that, um, lead to muscle growth to some degree, or might be an indication that you're getting a good stimulus. Those, uh, in itself were enough for me to say, Hey, maybe there's something here and maybe I should at least have some of my training, um, trying this. Um, so I think the experimental side, the curious side of me, and then the person who wants bigger biceps, uh, is like, Hey, this, there might be something here. I don't know if that's kind of your experience and what, what proxies you kind of use, but. No, a hundred percent. I think one proxy that can be kind of useful for determining what exercises you should use lengthened supersets for, and this is very how should I put it? This is very um, experimental. Like I wouldn't say this is for sure how to do it, but I think it's a good idea to try it this way. Try a lengthened superset for an exercise 
if you can get at least a few more reps on that second part of the set, that lengthened superset, um, that exercise is likely a good fit for the technique. So for example, for a squat, honestly, you might get like an extra rep out of doing that like superset because the bottom's already so challenging that you're not going to get much, many more reps by doing that lengthened superset. Whereas for a lateral raise, you might find you can get an extra five reps or even more. And I think that's where it's beneficial. I think that could be a really helpful way of conceptualizing it. I also want to reiterate, uh, as a scientist, my instinct is to be quite careful as a scientist, quotation marks, I'm just doing my PhD. Um, but I think we can be quite cautious in saying, oh, make sure to not over, over assert your confidence in these findings, make sure to be quite cautious in how you state them and so forth. And that's a good idea in general. But in this case, I do think it's worth putting some credibility into them. Like there are a lot of different bodies of literature that generally point towards this being a thing. Now, I'm not sure that necessarily means we should all just do isometrics, long muscle lengths. Um, but I think the idea that long muscle length training is productive for hypertrophy is very difficult to argue against now. Like I've seen, for example, arguments saying that, uh, oh, the biceps and triceps don't, um, don't benefit from long muscle lengths based on some reasonably obscure biomechanical modeling of that was what uh, I wrote a post yesterday that literally did that that was bio yeah. biomechanical argumentation for it's like this really won't yeah go ahead exactly it's very obscure it's not been tested out in research at all and so when i'm given the choice between okay when making decisions about exercise selection for example like whether i'm picking say a, a leg extension or a sissy squat do i want to trust the obscure mechanism that's never been tested in relation to hypertrophy or resistance training at all, really? Or do I want to trust the direct research comparing longer muscle lengths to shorter muscle lengths for hypertrophy, measuring hypertrophy across several studies? And my bet is always going to be, or my, my reasoning is always going to be based on the direct evidence. The more direct the study is to a question you're trying to answer, the better. And a lot of the times I think these uh, claims based on biomechanics or understandings of biomechanics even like they're so far removed from the actual question you're trying to answer it's the same with emg for example like the inference from emg to hypertrophy like saying oh this exercise caused a higher emg reading than this one therefore it's better for hypertrophy that is so far removed from the question you're trying to answer emg is not a good proxy for hypertrophy much in the same way i think a lot of um, rationales based on biomechanics are so far removed from the context of resistance training and hypertrophy, and they've not been tested at all, that I don't think it's worth it. A similar thing would be matching the strength curve to the resistance curve. So essentially, let's say you have your quads, right? Uh, because of their structure and your limb structure and everything, at different points, at different muscle lengths, your quads aren't quite as strong. If you've ever noticed doing a curl, for example, at the very top, you're quite weak. Like It's quite hard to push past a certain point. Um, if you try to perfectly match how hard an exercise is to how strong you are in that position, that would theoretically be good, right? Because then you get ideal stimulus and the exact same proximity to failure at every point during the exercise. So let's say there's different fibers activated during different parts of the range of motion. By making it equally challenging, you should get a very robust all-round stimulus, right? Um, but then when you look at the evidence investigating that in the research, there's been two studies, neither of them found better hypertrophy when they were trying to do this. You know, the traditional 
machines that were set up just as they are in your gym probably did just as well as the machines that were set up to perfectly match the strength curve to the resistance curve. So a lot of these ideas, I would much rather take the direct evidence we have over any sort of attempts to make a rationale based on mechanisms that haven't been directly investigated with the context you're trying to think about, essentially. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I've actually seen some of these biomechanists um, uh, try to discount other things that, that we know uh, have a lot of validity uh, in order to to make arguments and then that's where I really get lost where I'm like okay well we can't like like it's the data is greater than your feelings kind of thing where it's like like I don't think yeah, maybe you can make some hypothetical stuff um, but especially when you try to argue against the body of evidence that's when I generally become very skeptical of somebody um, is when you know we have a lot of information in one direction and then you try to go over here I am generally like uh, maybe if it's a nuanced thing, like something very small, but again, once you have the evidence piling up in a certain uh, direction, it's going to take a lot to convince me and, and probably a lot of data to convince me otherwise. Right. Um, and I think that 100%. people should generally be skeptical of, of, of people making claims that don't fit with the uh, general scientific consensus. Yeah. And I think it is essentially just theory crafting at that point. You have no direct evidence to support your claims. And it, it's cool to do, and it can pan out in research sometimes. Like, I don't know, if you saw a dude in the 1950s, for example, and he was talking about those avian studies where they weighed down uh, birds' wings with weights and stretched them out, and that guy was like, we should all do long muscle length training. Uh, you would probably think he was crazy. Hey, right. he was right, you know? He was right. Yeah. So but sometimes it can't play out that way. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it can play out that way, but I think uh, before there's a good amount of evidence, don't don't put all your your training stats there, let's say. And I think some people theory craft in biomechanics just for the sake of novelty and the illusion of being competent sometimes. Like let's say people people see that you're making um biomechanics content and it's pretty uh pretty opaque, you know, you don't really see what's going you don't really understand what they're talking about. It, to get behind you, you know, you ask a lot of questions to sort of get it, but then you don't really get it. And I think that can sometimes give the veneer of competence to coaches. And if someone can't distill down what they're trying to tell you reasonably, coherently, and quickly, it's a good sign that either they're trying to make it complicated so that you don't really understand that they can tell you something, or that they're not very good at what they do, usually. Um, because one of the sort of core principles in science communication is remove as much jargon as possible, make the words as simple as possible. If you can use a simple word, use a simpler word. If you can use a simpler analogy, use a simpler analogy. And so if someone's trying to explain a really difficult concept to you using biomechanics and you don't understand anything of what they're saying, maybe they don't either, you know? I'm so glad you said that because I did one of these or started one of these, um, uh, biomechanics courses and the gentleman who was talking, I would say I'm like relatively just competent in understanding scientific terminology, maybe not biomechanics as much, but just like, like generally speaking, if somebody's talking about, um, you know, hypertrophy or training, like I can understand it for the most part. Uh, but man, this guy just confused the hell out of me, like with the way he was talking. And I just couldn't understand the point he was trying to make. 
uh, it was just like, it was very, very confusing. And I initially, I ended up not, luckily I didn't pay for this course. Um, uh, buddy let me use his, but like, man, I would have been really disappointed because I just was just like trying to get anything just useful or practical out of it. And I just couldn't because it was just so, uh, like you said, opaque. Um, so I'm so glad you, you, you said that because they, yeah, that's exactly what I experienced, um, directly from one of these people who was selling a course on it. Um, so yeah, and, and I think you should always be skeptical when it is opaque and you don't understand, like if someone can't explain it at like a third grade level to you, then you should be skeptical. I mean, and maybe some things are a little more complex, but, but even just like, you know, what's, what's, what's the outcome of this, you know, doing this thing, or if they can't just get to, to some of the basics of it, then yeah, I think you should be skeptical. Um, yeah. And if there's what, something new every five seconds, like if there's a new exercise that you now have to do every few minutes, seemingly, it seems like theory crafting or novelty searching more than anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, the novelties is what makes it popular, right? Because it's like, hey, it's something new. Everybody's doing it. Um, I think that's a big part of it too. Is 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 what you know draws a lot of people in, especially in like social media and stuff. Uh, as opposed to let's do the same boring barbell row, you know, you know, uh, squat deadlift. Like, let's do this. Excuse me, new thing. But even though you know, we have things that are tried and true that, that just generally work well, at least we don't have things that work better. Um, I'm going to get you out of here. I just had one more question. Is there any potential time where you might bias a shortened position? Do you have any concern for, um, the lengthened versus shortened position in your training? Um, how, how does that work? I mean, I, and, and I, in general, I think also, uh, mentioned full range of motion. I, I would assume you generally try to train with a full range of motion as well. Yeah. So correct. Um, a few things, I guess. With short muscle lengths, I will typically include them mostly when one of the following things happens. Um, one is injury. If you simply can't train through long muscle lengths, then short muscle lengths is still better than nothing. Um, another one would be for strength, specificity is pretty important. So if you're doing a squat parallel in powerlifting, when you're getting close to competition, probably do squat parallel and not full range of motion. Um, another one is some people don't like it, but preference. Like if if you straight up just don't like training with full range of motion and you don't care that much about maximizing your results, at least not over just enjoying training, then hey, do some shortened uh, shortened muscle length training and that's fine too. Now in my own training, I do use pretty much exclusively full range of motion, but if there's a machine, for example, where I can't quite seem to get a full contraction. But I can get a deep, deep stretch, like more so than most machines. I'm not going to worry too much about that machine, like about that machine not giving me that fully shortened position. And I'm probably going to pick that one over a machine that doesn't give me much of a stretch every time. Um, I do think that this whole discussion opens up the door for certain exercises that have been kind of left in the dust a little bit, and maybe when viewed under the with the precept of full range of motion is always best, have been sort of left behind a little bit. For example, a free weight pullover can be kind of interesting now. or a dumbbell fly where you think, oh, but there's no resistance at the top with the shortened position, bad exercise. Now I think I'm more more open to those exercises being used. So for example, a pullover, you get, it's the exercise is by far the hardest at the very bottom and you get more stretch during a pullover in your lats than you probably would during any pull down or pull up variation in terms of positioning because you can actually go past, you know, the just overhead position. Um, so I think, for example, pullovers and dumbbell flies, I'm now more open to including in programs. And I guess that's one application of this whole area of research. 
interesting yeah most definitely i remember like doing arnold's programs and always doing tons of pullovers and stuff like that and i actually i haven't done them for years uh, so that's at least dumbbell pullovers so that's uh that's really interesting um yeah i would say like sometimes on machines even like uh, i know on like a machine row i generally will like never position myself where i can't get a good stretch but generally if i could position myself where i get a good stretch as opposed to having tons of like barbell rowing variations where maybe i can't get a good contraction in the short position i might come back and hold for a sec and, and just get a really good um contraction in my back um and sometimes that just maybe produces a better pump that's something that i sometimes do i don't know if you ever do, do stuff like yeah. that so I guess the way of you short muscle lengths is um, if you're doing a full range of motion, you're going to get some short muscle length work in anyways. So that's why I don't worry overly much about including right. it everywhere. Or, bi or biasing it. Exactly. I don't ever worry about biasing it because I mostly do some, like I got a lot of full range of motion between anyways, um, which is cover all in terms of at least covering all bases somewhat. But then when it comes to selecting machines, selecting exercises or doing any sort of stretch supersets, that is all to bias that length and position that I deem more productive for hypertrophy a bit more based on the evidence. That makes a ton of sense. So, so yeah, like, and like, like you mentioned, if you're selecting a machine, selecting something that probably trains you more in the length and position, I would say if you start to pay attention to this too, like I've become more conscious of it and I can, and, and I mean, in just general, those, these proxies in general, when I had a coach, um, I didn't as much, but uh, I've been doing it myself more, but I think just being conscious of these, if you have a coach or not, when you're selecting machines, if they give you some autonomy is to kind of like, look for, you know, how, what does the machine feel like when you use it? Um, and, and having the knowledge of potentially the stretch position is better for hypertrophy. Uh, I I've realized that a lot of the time, these machines that bias a stretch position, they just produce a better stimulus. Like you get more pump, more disruption. Uh, they just feel better in general. Sometimes they groove a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I think that, that if you're just conscious of that, uh, when you walk in and you're selecting exercises, um, and that's a great way to kind of have that exercise selection process and to go about it is to, to, to feel out a few machines and, and generally look for those ones that bias the, the lengthened, uh, or longer muscle lengths. What you're describing sounds an awful lot like conscious bodybuilding. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a good, uh, a good way to, to close this one out. Um, yeah, man, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on today. I, 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 sorry we went over time a little bit, but um, I, I think this is very useful. It has a ton of utility for um, for people, uh, the contest prep stuff and the stretch under load. I think a lot of people see my training and sometimes they're kind of confused as to why I might be using a bar with a deep camber or, or um, you know, doing some of these um, interesting or just, just general full range of motion because sometimes it's not a common thing. Um, so, so I wanted to touch on your, uh, stronger by science. What are kind of the services you offer with stronger by science? How, how do you guys go about coaching it too? I'm a little bit curious about that before you head out. Sure. So with strong by science, I'm essentially coaching for them. Like I'm a coaching contractor, which right. means I can still, I'm still coaching as my own brand as well. So wolf coaching, but I'm also coaching for strong by science, which means they get, client applications so people apply for coaching with strong by science and all the coaches strong by science are really good um that's part of the reason i wanted to work with them an application comes in uh, the coaches see the application uh we look at who's best suited to taking on that client okay. they get matched we discuss like we have a call with me it's specifically it's uh we book a call we for half an hour we discuss how everything um what their situation is what their goals are uh, what i need to know what any questions they have if they're happy to go forward, we go forward with payment and then we get started and we have 
you know, email communication, weekly video call check-ins and so forth. So it's all very, um, it's all very communication orientated. And I try to foster a sort of transparent and honest um, coach-athlete relationship. Because as we mentioned earlier, if you don't establish that, it's very difficult to know what's going on and for that relationship to last and be productive. 100%. I think the, 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 having the check-in points and communication is, is really big because um, you're likely to get someone to actually communicate um, everything uh, when they actually trust you as opposed to not building that trust or taking more time to build that trust um, and missing some things potentially. And I do really like the idea of them looking over the applications and then selecting someone who might be best suited because they have, now you have this, this, uh, uh, you know, diverse coaching pool and you can pick someone who maybe is better suited for somebody. Um, whereas like someone who's working independently, um, you know, you can only work with, you can work with people who are not best suited for you, but it's generally not the best practice, especially yep. when a lot of things don't align or they are doing a completely different, like, Oh, I'm training for strength and you're really specialized in hypertrophy training. Right. Um, so that's really, really cool. Uh, so, so those links are, I will provide down below. I'm assuming you can also, uh, get them on your Instagram through your link tree and stuff like that, which I will provide that's as right. well. Um, I, I really suggest you all give, uh, Milo a follow. Um, because uh, he posts a, a lot of great stuff. And that's where I originally got the idea for the LinkedIn supersets, which was a really cool thing that I applied. Um, and uh, are you still doing that survey for the uh, full range of motion as well? So that survey is done now. I've already oh, analyzed all the data. I got oh, nice. almost 800 responses, which was wow. almost much in terms of going through it, but it was very good. Um, yeah, yeah. Those findings should come out sometime within the next year or two. Sweet, sweet. I will be sure to share those when you share them. Um, and this will probably be out in about a month, but I, I, again, I, I appreciate your time. Um, and I know you had a really stressful day before this, so it really means a lot that you came on and, and, and chatted with Don't me. worry about it. It's always a great time, honestly, being on. It's one of my favorite podcasts. So yeah, most definitely, man. And I always enjoy talking to you. So, uh, be in touch and, and, uh, uh I hope you have a, a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks, man.